Hello, and welcome to Writer Mother Monster. I'm your host, Lara Ehrlich, and our guest tonight is Megan McGovern. Before I introduce Megan, uh, thank you all for tuning in. And you can now listen to Writer Mother Monster as a podcast on all audio platforms or read the interview transcripts on writermothermonster.com. If you enjoy the episode, please consider becoming a patron or patroness on Patreon. I'm a one-woman man at the moment, so your support helps make this series possible. Please also chat with us during the interview. Your comments and questions will appear in our broadcast studio and we'll weave them into the conversation. Now I'm excited to introduce Megan. Megan McGovern writes fierce, funny, and true stories about the American food system, homeschooling, social justice, and the odd quirks of American life. She lived on a farm teetering on the far edge of the country in Washington State, raising beef, chickens, and children. She recently went viral in braids and a Target dress, but her children, ages 10, 16, and 20, don't think it's nearly as funny as she does. If you haven't seen it, check it out on Facebook. We'll include the link uh, on the past. She has also just finished a memoir about growing up on the run with a mother who was a con artist. So we will talk to her about all of these things and more in just a second. But first, welcome, Megan. Hi. I'm glad to be here. Thanks Hi, Megan. Of course. Thank you for joining us. Um, so first, let's just kick off with um, something I'm sure everyone wants to hear about, the infamous viral Target prairie dress. So can you tell us just where this initiated and where it took you? Sure. Um, I mean, it was such a funny thing that in the middle of this pandemic, in the middle of, you know, where we all stuck here, that Target thinks that what everybody wants is is a prairie dress. And I know that everybody in the 70s, there was a, a throwback to prairie dresses in Holly Hobby and Little House in the Prairie. But you would think that now that everybody was on Zoom and everybody was doing, you know, high tech things to connect with each other, that the last thing people want to be reminded of is being their grandmothers and being stuck out in the middle of nowhere. And so I thought I would you know, when I saw it, I was like, well, I live on a farm in the middle of nowhere. Let's go ahead and play that up. <laughs> and once I did and I started with the pictures, I realized that this is everybody's worst nightmare is being stuck back. I mean, every single job that was lost in the pandemic was a woman and every single mother had to deal with childcare. No, very few fathers had to quit jobs or, or anything else. And I mean, all of a sudden people are cooking again. They're making bread again. They're and we're dealing with a plague. And it feels very much like you're in the, you know, 1890s, stuck in the middle of nowhere, baking bread, watching children and not allowed to go out and work and not allowed to go out into society. I mean, so I, it was it was kind of a throwaway thing that I thought maybe 100 people would see. I, I didn't imagine that it would have 55,000 shares and that um, people would start following me. And all of a sudden I started getting friend requests. And I was like, oh, people want to friend me. And the next day I had 700 friend requests. So I was like, oh, oh. And uh, then it was 22,000 people following me. And I was like, I I'm not really that funny. I, I don't know if I'm going to be this funny every day. But I I I'll see what I can throw out there. Uh, I can always put in pictures of baby goats. And those are always popular. So, yeah. I have to say, I love goats. I had goats growing yeah. up, <laughs> although we were not farmers. Yeah. 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 Um, no, but you mentioned being funny and the humor. And, and that's something I cannot understate is how funny um, that post is on Facebook. And for all of you who don't who aren't familiar with it and you go, make sure to read each of the captions under the amazing images, uh, because it really is. It's sort of a satire of living in the 1800s on a farm um, during the end of the world, which I yeah. think captured everyone's feelings very precisely. What kind of life is it that, you know, if you had said to somebody three years ago, two or three, well, I say five years ago, somebody said, you know, you're going to be at the point where Donald Trump is president. You're fighting over toilet paper in the middle of a plague, in the middle of an economic collapse, and there are going to be people storming the Capitol. You've been like, yeah, uh-huh, yeah, nope, yeah, that's not, I've had enough of the dystopian science fiction novels for one day. Yeah, definitely. And it's brought some well-needed um, levity to the horrors that we were living yeah. and yeah. are still living through, although Trump is yeah. gone. Yeah. Um, and we were talking before the interview just about being a public figure now and what that's like for you, because you are, for better or worse, now sort of very yeah. visible on social media, right? And it's interesting. I mean, I've always been a writer and I, I used to write for the Houston Chronicle and I used to be a newspaper reporter for years. 
and five people, five million people would read an article of mine on a, on a Sunday, but it was other people's words. I was writing about, you know, the president or about what the mayor was doing or the Violence Against Women Act, something like that, where I could go in and tell other people's stories, but I didn't have to expose my own feelings or anything else. So I had a curtain behind me and, and my words. But uh, these are, if I screw up, everybody hears it. If I say the wrong thing, everybody comes back to me and says, no, actually, these were your words. And a few years ago, I hurt a friend of mine's feelings pretty badly. And I said, oh, well, I didn't mean that. She said, you're a writer. You know what your words mean. You know everything that you say has double the meaning because when you say something, you have every idea of what that impact is. And I was like, well, that's not fair. Oh, maybe it is. Maybe I do actually have to be careful about what I say. <laughs> yeah, and there was an interesting um, thread on your page the other day that I found myself just following um as a spectator, but you were writing about your experience um, with it's your son, right? Who right. who has autism? I have three. I have three children, and they're all. I don't really like to label them, but they are all quirky, and they all have issues, challenges. I say instead of issues, but I mean they're they're odd. They're odd birds, all of them. But they're they're my odd birds. They're my little flock, and we do what we do to get through. And yes, we struggle with ADD. I mean, I am. All over the place. The first person, if you read three of my posts, you will know that I am all over the place. I am out in the garden while I am also, you know, cooking while I'm also supposed to be writing a book while I'm doing an interview while I'm also homeschooling. And um, if somebody asks me what I do for a living, I have no idea. And I still don't. I mean, I'm, I'm a gluten free baker, but I'm also a writer, but I'm also a mother. And I and so we all have ADD. We are all scattered and we just kind of pull it together. And so I wrote a post about, you know, my quirky family that I embrace and somebody wrote back uh, and just pushed back on it and said that it was not the appropriate way to discuss this and that I was coming at it from a dip from a, the wrong perspective and you know, the, the conversation around autism and about um, ADD has evolved over the last 15 years incredibly uh, the same way that the conversation about race and uh, conversation about politics the conversation about who we are as Americans has evolved and Somebody who hasn't been following that, somebody who is new to the discussion about autism, what it is, or somebody who's new to discussing race, if they jump into a conversation on a Black Lives Matter activist about race, they're going to have a whole different vocabulary, understanding, background, and semantics. If somebody who has um, who is transgender and has been through, and is 40 years old and went through this 20 years ago and is steeped in activism has a page and somebody else jumps in and says, let me tell you what I think about trans people. There's such a disconnect now with layers and layers and layers of of meaning and nuance that every conversation you get into, especially online, you have to know where the other people are coming from, what their language means, what different words mean in different contexts. It, It becomes harder conversations to navigate than it used to be. Yeah, yeah. And especially on your personal page, right? When people are coming to your page and, um, as we were saying, sort of coming there to argue or to bring their agendas to your page where you have a following. How do you navigate that? Well, I have a very clear policy on my page and I state it, I mean, every once in a while. and, And one of my favorite expressions is the devil doesn't need an advocate. He's got plenty. I'm good. And the other one is, is that on my page, you will treat it like my living room. And these are my friends. These are people I have invited into my living room. And they're people that I like and respect. And you will not come in and say unkind things to each other. You can say you disagree. You can have an interesting conversation. You can jump in and talk about whatever you want to talk about. The minute somebody's disrespectful or unkind, I'm going to ask them to leave. The same way I would ask them to leave my living room if they were disrespectful and unkind. And once people realize that this is not, you know, the... It's not a public forum like the Fox News comments or the New York Times comments. This is the page of a real person. You're not standing in the middle of a public park arguing with each other. You're standing in somebody's house who has invited you in, and you can go away and go argue somewhere else if you don't like it. And mm-hmm. I tend to respect that. And my my overall directive is to be kind. You don't have to be nice because nice is kind of fake and, and, you know, has an overlay of cynicism. But kind is important, and we work on that. Yeah, definitely. Tell me more about your your writing career. So you mentioned 
some of the journalism that you've done. Take us just from the very beginning, the discovery of the power of words to where you are now. Um, well, my mother was an interesting character, and she she always was, but she was a reporter in New York City in the 1950s and 60s. And she got to interview the Beatles on their first concert when they when they came to wherever it was, Madison Square Garden or something. And she was five foot ten and blonde and very pretty and one of the first female reporters that were out there. And so she got a lot of attention, you know, when she was out there. And she told us these stories growing up. That was all we heard was she was a fashion reporter and a celebrity reporter. And she had quite a way with words. And so I had always been open to the idea that writing is, is a good way to make a living and it's an, which it isn't, but um, it's an interesting way to tell stories and it's an interesting way to connect with people. And so when I went to college, I was going to go for creative writing and I was going to write novels and um, the people who were helping with my education said, yeah, you can't make a writing living with novels. You, you've got to have a career that the day you get out of college, you can go and get a job. You can't just live on a sofa for the next five years. So all right, I'll try journalism. And it, it was fun. I did. Um, I worked in Houston at the Houston Chronicle. I worked out in College Station, Texas, uh, which is home of A&M University, and I was a very liberal, young, naive person who had no idea what A&M was or what College Station, Texas was, and that was eye-opening. I was a police reporter in Conroe, Texas, where I worked with the Sheriff's Department and um, got to see, well, if I got to, I saw my first deaths. I got to work with the police and on arrests and there was a flood that came through and, and killed a lot of people. And I went to the scenes and, and saw the bodies. And that was a, a lot. And then um, I switched to editing for a while. And that was a lot of fun, too, because that got, made me a better writer. Because when you see how badly these people turn in their stories, you're like, oh, I can't believe I ever did that. And um, editing was fun. And then I did feature writing. And then I um I had kids and my kids were challenging and so I stopped working for money and started working for my kids instead and all the time I've been writing and writing in the background I've been writing a book about growing up with my mother and I've never really I've never published it I've never moved forward with it I've been talking about it for years but not done anything with it and I think the time has finally come that it's the right time to publish and um so that's what I've been working on and, you know, Facebook posts, because I like, that's when my, my outlet is the computer. And I, I used to have a group of women that we wrote with every day. We would write a hundred emails in the course of a couple of days. And now that Facebook came around, that's turned into another outlet that's an easy, fun. It, it's almost like a newspaper. You have a deadline. You can only write one thing and then it goes away just like a newspaper. It's not like a book where you can go back and, you know, where you have to edit and edit it and edit it. Once the Facebook post is gone, people have seen it. You need to move on to the next thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there's so much I want to break down here that I'm excited about talking with you about um, where to start. So tell me, for, let's talk about the memoir first and about your mother. And you said in your bio, it's about your mother, the con artist. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? That's a two-word way to describe her, and I don't know if that's fair to her. She was a character. She was a writer. She was one of the most brilliant woman anybody has ever met. She was sharp. But she had had a troubled childhood and she ended up um just she I mean she had a fantastic life in New York City as a journalist. And then she met my father and my father was an actor in New York City in um you know I think she met him in nineteen sixty eight or nineteen sixty nine and he was the Kind of a, oh, he was a drunk. He was a character, you know, he wanted to be Jack Nicholson or Paul Newman and he ran with Jack Nicholson and Paul Newman and wanted to be one of them. And, um, he was always on kind of the outskirts of it, but never managed to break free in, into the whole, you know, next tier of acting. But he did a lot of theater work and they met each other and they both brought out the absolute worst in each other and absolute chaos ensued and he left his wife and small child for her and she left New York City and they ended up they had run-ins with the mafia they had run-ins with debt they had run-ins with police officers and they ended up uh, getting run out of New York City and after they left they went to Los Angeles where they started over again 
and they had four children in five years, which, and I was the oldest. And, um, they were okay, but when my dad finally had enough of it when I was 10 years old, and my mom took the four of us and didn't know what to do with herself. She had four little girls under 10 years old, and we kind of just went on a spree all over the country. We, she didn't know where to go. We had $600 a month to live on in child support, and we went to upstate New York, and then we went, and we were there for about a year, and she... Uh, had no money, so she got renter's insurance on the place we were uh, living in, and she burned down the house, and um, I know, with everything we owned, and took that money, and we went to Texas, and then we lived in, oh, I don't know, eight or ten houses in Texas, then we went back to Los Angeles, and then we went up to Oregon, and then we went back down to Los Angeles, and then we went to Connecticut, and at, at which point I was 17 or 18 and I said okay I've had enough I'm staying here and my mother went off on her way and she went to um, South Carolina and then she went to the Bahamas and then she went to Europe and she just kept going and going and going and there was never any income it was always um, insurance checks and kiting checks and you know if she would get a thousand dollars from relatives she would start a new bank account and that thousand dollars you can write a lot of bounced checks on a thousand dollars you can live for three, four, five months before they are going to arrest you. And so then you go to the next town and then you need a thousand dollars to set up and you can do it for another four or five thousand, you know, four or five months. And um, I went to 27 schools in six or seven states. I think I can't remember. And I was the only one watching my sisters. I was 10, 11, 12. And they were, when we started this whole thing, they we were, you know, four, six, eight and 10. And um, I watched them all and took care of them cooked and cleaned and did all of that and swore I would never have children and I was never going to take care of little kids. And um, it was interesting. I mean, she was fantastic in a lot of ways. She was funny and she was smart and she was clever. And she also was was hard to live with. And you never knew which way was up. And you didn't know when you got home if the electricity was going to be on and if you were going to be have the play date with your friend or if there was going to be a moving van in the driveway. And so it was hard to keep up with people. And I ended up living in a, a world of books and literature, which also probably helped my writing a lot. And, you know, my my sisters, I think, had it even harder than I did because they were younger. Well, and they had me to raise them, which wasn't much. And um, but we you know, we got through it. There was a lot of laughter. One of the things that my, my sister keeps saying is your book's not funny enough. It was funny. And I was like, it was funny, but it's also hard to write about how funny it was. And one of the, the key things in my book that I end up telling the story over time is that when I was 10, I found out about my father's son from his first marriage and that I had an older brother. And I was like, that's impossible. I'm the oldest. That's it. There is no way I have an older brother. And eventually I got to meet him. And then when I was 20 or 21, I found out that um, my mother finally started to tell me some of her stories. And I found out that she had, um, three children she had given up for adoption before she had us and so it was she had this into this whole life she hadn't met my dad until she was 30 and she had a baby at 15 and a baby at 21 or 22 and then another baby at 22 or 24 and she was very catholic and um didn't have the resources to have babies and did nuns took them and then a couple of years ago, two of the brothers showed up. The two of the babies showed up, and they are my, I guess, my older brothers. And we've ended up connecting through 23andMe. And um, I met one of them last summer, and I'm and I've been talking to the other one via Facebook. And so it's been, you know, an interesting journey because they call up and they say, "Well, so tell me about my mom." I'm like, "Oh boy, wow, that's something." I'm not sure what, where do you want me to start. And um, I've always been pretty annoyed that I'm five foot five when. My mother was 5'10", and one of the brothers is 6'7". I'm like, damn, so unfair, you know. Um, and, and I would have loved to have had older brothers when I was growing up. I mean, I don't think they deserved the childhood I had. I don't think anybody deserved the childhood I had. But it would have been interesting to, to have them and to see what would have happened if we had, if they had been around, if there had been more openness, if there had been a way to connect everybody back then. Yeah, that sounds incredibly challenging. I can't it imagine. Was. It was. Yeah. I mean, but it wasn't, it was a 
bad childhood and some things I was very angry at my mother for. But on the other hand, there was, and this is all children really need, the stability of knowing that somebody really did care about us and love us. And we, my mother's sisters were always around and they were not able to step in and fix it. But we knew we had a place to go if things got really bad. We were never going to be homeless. Yeah. Even though we were homeless, we weren't ever going to be really homeless. There's still a safety net under the safety net kind of thing. That makes sense. Yeah. And you said that because of that, you, you did not want children. And I can understand. I mean, that's, you had a lot of responsibility when you were growing up. At what point did you decide you did want children? Um, I was going to, when I was 27, 28, I was going to take my career as a, you know, copy editor and I was going to run away and I was going to go teach English in Prague or do something in Europe. I always wanted to have an adventure. I wanted to do my own life, get away from my family, not be stuck as um, being identified as the oldest of four or the oldest McGovern girl or, you know, any of that. And I wanted to go find myself. And um, I met my husband, sadly and wonderfully. I met my husband and that was the end of that idea because he had a job. And in order to make money, he had to actually go to work every day. And I had never been around somebody who had to work nine to five, Monday through Friday, every single day to make money. And I like, what is that? We can't just run away. And he had money in a savings account. I was like, if you have money in a savings account, why aren't we spending it and going to Europe? And he's like, that's not, not the way it works. And he owned a house. And I was like, if you own a house, why aren't we selling it and running away and having adventures? He's like, Boy, I, I gotta, yeah. And he, he kind of took a couple steps back at that one. Like, I, okay. But when we got engaged, we flew to Paris together. And he had the money to go because he hadn't blown all of his money on wild things. He had the money to take me to Paris and we went to Paris and it was eye opening and amazing to see the kind of things that you could do if you actually had a job and worked and saved money. And, um, I mean, we joke about it. It's kind of a silly cliche, but I build all the castles in the air and he puts foundations over. He runs around under my castles trying to build foundations as, as fast as I can create the, the, the castles and, it has worked. It has been a very good partnership. And we, when I met him, I said, Oh, turns out I didn't want any children. I want your children, you, I can see you and having your kids that, that works. Okay. And it, it's been really good. Yeah. It sounds like he built, he helped build a foundation, not just under castles, but under your life a little bit. Yeah. And, and I, and he would never have thought about going to Paris that way that, just wouldn't occur to him. It wasn't where he had, you know, it was just adventure. I'm an engineer. Engineers don't do adventure. And um, so, but he, we, we really complement each other well. And it's been almost 25 years and we haven't looked back. It's amazing. Yeah. So tell us more about your kids. And um, <laughs> so you have three kids, right? I have three kids and we have a bonus that's living with us now. My, um, my nephew came to live with us a while ago and um, he's fantastic. He's, uh, actually, he's out on a boat right now. He's a boat captain, and he's 30. And then we have uh, my oldest is 20, and he is in college in Minnesota. And he's a Dungeons and Dragons enthusiast and a medieval history guy, and he's very, very into the stuff that he's into. And, um, you know, we debate back and forth whether he's geeky or a nerd, but he'll, he'll call me up and say, you know, did you know about the history of capitalism in the 1920s and how it affected gender equality? No, no, I didn't. And and he gets very into that kind of stuff. And um, he's he's a he's a good egg. <clears throat> and my middle Sander, he is he's pretty fantastic. He's 16, and he's the one um, who we talk about. Wait, he had autism when he was little, and I say he had autism because I, I know you don't grow out of it. But when he was two or three, he did not speak, and he did not. We didn't think he would be functioning as an adult has been able to speak as an adult. And um, he was, he was tough. He, he had a really rough start to things and the year for his first 18 months, he didn't stop screaming and it was um, very, very rough. And now at 16, he still likes what he likes. I mean, we, we talked a, a lot. He loved the platypus and he was like the world's leading expert on the platypus for seven year olds for a long time. And we went to every museum and every Australian animal we could find. We went to the kangaroo places and we we, we did a marine mammal study because he was into orcas for a while. And um, then 
when it was, it's kind of funny. The year that Barack Obama got elected, he was, um, I think he was four. And I gave him an electoral college map because we're homeschoolers. And that's what we do as homeschoolers. We're those geeky people. And he started coloring red and blue into the states. That was it. He's been hooked ever since. And he's been into politics. And he can name every senator and most representatives and tell you how, whether they're the junior senator or senior senator from their state, what, how many percentage points they got you know, elected by, what their biggest problems are in the state, why they're going to get reelected or not. And he's right now focused on the Del Rio Grande, the Rio Grande Valley of, or Rio Grande, I'm not sure which one you actually say in Texas, um, and the valley there and why they switched from blue to red in the last election and what they're going to do and how many percentage points they need to swing back. And he's got a whole Twitter account about it. And okay, dude. That's that's your thing. And he he loves to take out his game board of the Electoral College. And if somebody will say, I just don't understand how the Electoral College works and why if you win the popular vote, you might not win. the. I got this. I got this. And he goes in. And, um, but he's actually turned out to be the most socially adept of any of us, which I never saw coming. Um, he likes to study other teenagers and people around him and say, OK, that's how they dress. That's what they do. That's how they talk. And then he just goes and blends right in and wears those clothes, which I've never been able to do. I can't figure out how to dress or what to wear or what people say. And he's good at it. And um, he gets kind of annoyed that we don't. He's like, you could just fit in, you know, like I, I could try, but I can't. He's like, it's easy. You just do it. You just fit in. And so for 16, he's doing pretty good. He was on the rowing team last year and it's been hard for everybody. He, he went from rowing three hours a day to no exercise at all. And uh, we got this farm because he needed goats. He needed animals. And so he has, right now we have, what, two or three cows and five goats. And he has chickens. And he has a dog that he adores that sleeps on his head. And he has barn cats and um, everything else. And he has everything he needs to to thrive. Um, And then I have my little one who, her name is Scout. She is 10. And she was born when I was 41. and the other day, she said, so tell me what life was like pre-scout. I said, well, I, said, well, I kind of waited for you forever. I said, I was going to have a girl first. And you were you were planned. You were my little girl. I said, you didn't come around till 10 years later. I said, everybody was already born, and you had two older brothers. I said, I waited and waited, and you finally showed up. She said, well, I wish you had had me when you were 30 instead of 40. I said, why? She said, well, because then you'd take me to the park and take me places, and you'd have energy to do stuff besides house projects. I was like, look, kid, that's not fair. She's like, it's like, it's been COVID. That's the whole reason we're not going. We're just like, uh-huh. We could go to a picnic if you wanted. It's like, fine, fine. Use the guilt, twist all the screws. And of course we ended up at the park having a picnic that night. So yeah, she's the one who really gets how things work and, and how to, what to say and what to do. And she's, she's something I write a lot about scout stories. And um, I mean, going back to being a public figure though, that's my favorite thing to do, to write about my kids and to talk about their personalities and their quirks. I'm okay talking about it here in a public broadcast. Do I want pictures of my kids in front of 20,000 people? Do I want their names, you know, middle names and where they live and what school they go to and a picture of my pubescent 10-year-old girl on Facebook? I mean, it was great when it was my friends and my family and people that I knew in real life. 20,000 people, not so much. But, How are you navigating that? What Are you doing anything differently? Uh, yeah, I'm doing a lot differently. I'm saying things like my son or my middle son or my oldest son instead of Sawyer and assuming that everybody knows who Sawyer is. Um, I'm not posting pictures of my kids as nearly as much. I might put one or two pictures if they are innocuous, generic photos. I'm not posting videos of Scout singing her fantastic songs or her artwork or any of the things that sort of bring my page to life and that people love and that people love to hear funny stories about Scout because she's fantastic, but they're her stories. And I think that every person has a right to their own stories and their own privacy. And of course she doesn't mind me sharing them with my sisters and my aunt and the people who were on Facebook a while ago. Does she want me sharing them with people who are in Australia or Prague and, you know, who don't know her? I don't know. And if she does now at 10, when she's 22 and looks up her name, will she want them to know that, you know, somebody stole those pictures and had them on the website for a while? 
So, uh, yeah, I mean, there's a lot to navigate. There's a lot to, to figure out what to say and, and what not to say. And I, I have felt not silenced by Facebook and, and having these many followers, but certainly, um, the depth, be, it becomes shallower. I don't jump in and say, Oh my fucking God, did you hear about this thing in politics? Because I can't, because not everybody's going to agree with me. It used to be that everybody agreed with me because that's why they were friends with me on Facebook. Now, not everybody agrees with me. Not everybody wants to hear bad language. And I'm like, this is me. You're going to hear bad language, but they don't know that. Um, they don't know who my kids are and they don't know my politics and it's hard to get into the depths of that. And I find myself talking about things like gardening and um, cooking more, which are pretty innocuous topics, but they're safe and they're connectable. And everybody says, Oh my God, you're so relatable. I'm like, gardening's relatable. Not me. I mean, I, I am, but I'm not, I mean, gardening's relatable and, and whether or not I wear makeup is relatable and you know, but maybe my politics, not so much. Yeah. Yeah. You're a human being with yeah. unrelatable and relatable. Yeah. Quality. Right. It's hard to, it is, it's hard to make sure that I'm not, I'm not at all stifling myself, but I, I also don't want to piss people off. Last thing I want, and I really enjoy that I have people that, that like me and that I am connecting with. And there are a lot of people that I really, really am having fun with on Facebook. At the same time, if you've got 20,000 people turning on you, I've seen that happen. It's not something I want to happen because I just wasn't careful with my words. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. We see those cancellation. Yeah. Cultures. Yeah. Right. Um, let's go back to, so something I also wanted to ask you about, I want to get to the farm too, because oh, yeah. there's a lot there, but tell me yeah. about homeschooling. Homeschooling is fantastic. And it gets, now it doesn't get a bad, well, it is now too. Um, homeschooling is not at home and it's not schooling. It is the best way that I know how to describe it. And I've written an article about this on Medium, but I've talked about it for years is that you are the contractor. You are not the builder. Um, every child, if you consider that an education is a home to shelter your child sort of thing, that you consider this, that this is in the analogy, you're building a house. Every child needs something different. And, you know, my middle child needs probably a cabin in the woods with lots of animals around him. And my older child needs uh, Hogwarts and Oxford College and, and a place that has ancient deep books and medieval language. And, you know, Scout may need, um, a place in New, a, a cool flat in New York City that, you know, where she could study gender equity and all of that. And I would never build my son a log cabin. And I don't think the people that are building Oxford are the same people who should be building log cabins. You need different people to do those things. What my job is just to go find the people who can build those things and who are good at that and then connect them with my son. And so if my son wants to learn about politics, I can't teach him about politics and I can't teach him about statistics, but I can get him into great classes with things that do that. And I can teach him how to go find what he needs to learn. My older son, I mean, he took fantastic classes in, in he took a class in literature through Lord of the Rings and he took classes in science fiction and dystopia and he took classes in dystopian movies, science fiction and dystopian movies. And I, I think he's taken five different classes in science fiction. I've never read any of those books, but he's dived deep into them and he's able to work with great teachers and great writers. And I think people who think they can't homeschool think that homeschooling is sitting in front of your kids trying to teach them. And I don't teach my kids anything. I get out of the way and let them learn what they want to learn. And even now, when I moved into this house eight years ago, we had 3000 books and they were mostly homeschooling books. And, um, I had a bin of books about Rome and ancient Greeks and a bin of books about medieval knights and another book, a box of bins about uh, Vikings and one about um, Shakespeare. And now I'm finding that with Scout, we don't use the books. And I'm, I'm kind of heartbroken over that since I'm a writer and a book person and a book nerd. But it's just as much fun to go and watch the Romans reenactment and watch the troops and watch the generals and see all of it on YouTube as it is to read a book about it that's static and, and everything else. And of course I want my kids to be able to dive deep into great literature, but you can do almost anything on YouTube. And I tried to teach myself to knit years ago, over and over again from a knitting book. Couldn't do it. YouTube. I got it. I got it in a couple of hours and you could rewind and go, Oh, that's what you're supposed to do. And so homeschooling with YouTube, I mean, I don't understand 
how anybody is sitting in a regular classroom. I don't learn um, through videos and watching lectures. I would much rather have it on a piece of paper in front of me where I can skim through it, get it next, 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 and not wait for somebody to finish all of their words. And so if I have the option of um, sitting through a lecture in a college course or sitting through a lecture from anybody or being able to watch YouTube, skim through all the PowerPoints, get through all the things and then move on to the next one, move on to the next one, um, or just get the points that I want to get out of it and move on. I mean, why would I sit through hours and hours and hours of lecture? I think that school's old fashioned. School is outdated. The idea that any child can't choose what they want to learn is horrific to me. Why would anybody have to learn certain things in third grade and certain things in fourth grade and certain things in fifth grade? Why not, if your kid's really into ancient Greek, let them spend three years learning all about ancient Greece and then later on them learn about the other stuff. And so we've spent, you know, 20 years doing experience. I don't know. Learning by experience, I guess, is the way to do it. We go to museums and we've done field trips and we did um, a fantastic trip. I wrote about uh, the Little House in the Prairie road trip where we went uh, from here to South Dakota and explored everything from Yellowstone to um, Laura Ingalls house. And we got to sleep in a covered wagon on her property. And we did that was our American history world tour. And so, I mean, homeschooling doesn't look the same for anybody or if it does, then you're doing it wrong. And um, it shouldn't look like school. It shouldn't feel like school. School is, is a way that you teach 30 kids at once and you do crowd control. And, you know, homeschooling is individualizing, customizing um, an education for each child. And you know, we farm school more than anything. And you've set up a, a network, right? It's not just. Oh, I mean, yeah, I have. a. Um, when we moved here, there was no ne- the network here was for Christian homeschoolers and um that's the way that most homeschooling started out in the 70s was for um, Christian homeschoolers who didn't like uh, the government having a say in their education. And so they, to their credit, did a very good job um, in every state making sure that homeschooling was legal and that homeschooling um, was controlled by the parents. And because of those laws, everybody now has a fantastic network of homeschoolers in every state, but a lot of them are conservative Christians. And so they, um, the, the, the whole core of the uh, point of the Christian curriculum is to teach uh, that evolution is wrong. And so a lot of the science is terrible and a lot of the books are from a perspective I'm not interested in. And they have um, started from a perspective of having books to give to missionaries in other countries. And so they had curriculums that they or curriculum that they could send to missionaries in Africa that they could teach their students. And um, they were very, very traditional public schools. It doesn't fit anything what we were doing. And so when we got here, there was a Christian homeschooling set network here. And we went to three meetings and said, okay, next. And um, we set up our own. And so now we have, I think, 1400 families in the in the network and it's mostly just a facebook group but we have a not back to school picnic in september and we have some classes and every wednesday there's when there's not COVID, we have a fantastic park day that will have anywhere from you know 50 to 200 kids running around on the beach or in the park and um talking and all the moms get together some dads get together and talk about whether they need whether they've got a kid who needs biology class that year and how to get a biology class going or whether they need uh, what the best writing program is and um, what what they're going through. And so it's, it's been a good source for me to be able to, I, I was terrible at spacing children. I mean, that's why I have a, t- a 10-year-old, a 30-year-old, and a 20-year-old. And um, not many people have been homeschooling 20 years. And so when they come and they say, you know, I'm having an issue with this, I've probably seen it before. I've probably got a good curriculum to go to, and I, I'm, you know, a good resource to have. So it's good to be able to, to do that. It's amazing. Yeah. That is amazing. Yeah. Um, and I, I'm sure that a lot of women out there listening right now who have been homeschooling their kids right. in, you know, the pandemic right. version of homeschooling. Well, they don't get to see homeschooling. They, they see the worst of it. And people keep writing in. They're like, well, I've been homeschooling and it sucks. I'm like, yeah, it does. They're like, you love homeschooling. I'm like, not now I don't. I like homeschooling when we have park day. And I mean, in this, group that we're in, we have, uh, I mean, we have homeschool skiing, we have homeschool ice skating, we have homeschool roller skating, we have uh, park day, we have archery club, we have chess club, we have math club, 
I ran three different book clubs. We have a homeschool 4-H group with goats. We have everything. And then to go, and then not the best part about homeschooling that none of the people who are pandemic homeschooling will ever see is that we have all of the museums and all the parks to ourselves. We have every day in the museums are empty. Every day the movie theaters are empty. We get to go do all of that. Not anymore. We're stuck at home. And the other huge benefit to homeschooling is that you get to pick your curriculum. If your kid wants to be a chef and everybody comes and says, what's the best curriculum? I'm like, okay, does your kid want to be a ballerina or a chef or an architect or a lawyer? What, I don't know what the best curriculum is. What if your kid wants to be a mechanic? I can't tell them to go take this curriculum if they want to work on cars. Oh, that's what homeschooling is. You go Learn about what you're interested in. That's what you're doing. And yes, of course, you need reading and writing and math and everything else. And you don't want to shut doors. The most key point to all of this is that you don't want to um, handicap your kid by not teaching them things that they need to go do one path or another if they change paths. But there's nothing wrong with going down a hundred different paths to find out what you want to do and following passions. And the homeschooling um, pandemic version where you have to sit in front of a computer and click all day long and sit in front of Zoom meetings all day long, I, I it would make makes me want to throw up thinking about it. And so many people are miserable. I'm like, of course you're miserable. This is not homeschooling. This is, I don't know what this is. And, Something very different, yeah. And, and then I get the pushback from, well, the teachers are doing the best they can. Of course the teachers are doing the best they can, but it still sucks. And of course this is a miserable way to do it. And there are thousands of children, hundreds of thousands of children who the only time they eat is at school. The only human connection they get is from teachers. That teachers are the only people who are safe. I would never take that away from people who need public school and from, and from children who get mm-hmm. a great deal out of public school. But at the same time, I don't think anybody is served by Zoom meetings all day long. No, no, definitely not. Um yeah, I, I want to follow that thread because I'm on Zoom meetings all day long for a different reason. I'm like, oh, God. But um, but so you do so many things and you have been doing so many things for 20 plus years, um, you know, even before you had kids. But now right. you have children and you have a nephew and you have right. this homeschooling network and you have a farm with all these animals and you've written a memoir um, and you have a public persona through which you're writing. Um, How do you also fit your writing in let's talk logistics like when do you write um you know that's funny because what i was thinking when somebody said what are you going to talk about i said well i'm going to talk about you know i would love to see an article about you know tolkien and lewis they always talk about how tolkien and c.s lewis were good friends and they were talking about their writing at oxford and everything and nobody ever said to them you know well when do you feed your kids and what do, what do you when do you do the cooking and grocery shopping and how do you do your laundry and um you know, and, and wow, who gives the kids baths? And I would love to see an article about, you know, their children. We know the answer to that. I mean, we absolutely know what the answer to where, you know, we're Tolkien's kids. Well, he had four kids under 10 when he was writing, you know, Lord of the Rings. And he didn't give them baths. He didn't do laundry. He didn't clean up. He had a maid and a housekeeper and a wife. Maybe the wife was the maid and the housekeeper. I don't know. But um the answer to that and a lot of people aren't going to like this, but it is what it is, is I, I don't do a lot of things. I don't clean. I don't do a lot of dishes. I don't do a lot of laundry. My house is a mess. I don't care. And I don't have housekeeping standards for somebody else. My husband does the laundry because he doesn't mind doing it. And um, he's good at it. And I suck at it. My kids do the dishes. Um, I do the grocery shopping and the cooking because I like it and I'm good at it and I'm fast at it. And a lot, of, and some nights we don't. Some nights we have scrounge night where we have leftovers and everything else. And, um, I, I mean, one of the, the key things I, I, I did learn from my mother growing up is that your life doesn't have to look like other people's lives. You don't have to fit what other people want you to fit in. And there are days when I go around my living room and think, oh my God. I, I need to figure out how to put a rug in that matches this, and I need to get end tables. People need end tables. They need lamps. Why can't my living room look like everybody else's living room? And why did I th- I took up the rug? Because we have a pandemic puppy, so my living room looks empty and it looks ridiculous. And <clears throat> there are other days that I, I have piles of things. Everybody has piles of things, but ADD people have real piles of things. And um, I think I've got to put all this away, and I've got to do this. And I think, no, I don't. I, I want to write. I don't want the piles to take over my life. And 
there are people who would argue that if you were organized and on top of things, you wouldn't have piles and they wouldn't take over your life and you would have time to write. Okay. Maybe that works for you. For me, I, I gotta have my piles of things and my stuff. And I, I just, I don't feel guilt about not having a perfect house. I don't feel guilt about not having perfect clothes for my kids. I don't have any, um, I mean, we don't do dry cleaning. We don't do nice clothes. We don't do, we don't go to church. We don't, um, have a lot of social activities beyond homeschooling. And, uh, yes, we have to, we have to take care of cows and we have, we have obligations. We have to take care of cows. They yell at you if you don't. You, the goats yell at you if you don't, or if you aren't out there taking care of them. The kids yell at you if you don't feed them, even though I keep forgetting. Um, but, you know, the things that are not important, we let go. And I, I think, one of the most key things you can learn is that where you, the only things you have that matter are your time and your attention. That's, that's it. And where you put your time and your attention defines who you are. And if I put my time and attention to having a perfect house or to making sure that it looks like other people's houses or to make sure that um, other people approve of me, then that's where my life will be spent. And I, I don't, have any interest in that i i just i just don't and if, if that means that some people disapprove i'm i'm okay my next door neighbor doesn't approve of me she hates me my my yard is a mess and she has a beautiful clean yard she doesn't like to live dandelions I'm like i have 10 acres and i have cows i'm gonna have dandelions and she wants me to use roundup on my on my yard and mow my no not today. It's just not going to happen. And things like that are just not things I've just learned to slide off my back. And so because of that, I don't have a lot of time for writing, but I do make it a priority. That's what I do. It's I, I write and I um, even if it's just a, a post on Facebook, I now have a draft folder of things I want to write about, things that are important to me. And even if it's only 30 to 40 minutes of sitting down and, you know, fleshing out an idea or or working on one chapter. Um, I, I think it's worth putting my time and attention into something that has value because otherwise I'm useless. I'm not good to other people. I'm not a good mother. I'm not a good wife. I'm not a good friend. If I'm stuck. I am never more miserable and unhappy and grumpy and nasty as somebody who is taking care of others and has no life for myself. You don't want me around. You nobody, I'm, I mean, I would, I'm just a miserable human being and I, I turn bitter and I would much rather be a, a happy, easygoing mother with dishes in the sink and not do them. And I know there are people who cannot go to sleep if there are dishes in the sink and there's laundry to be done. I don't care. I'd rather write. I love that. That's very freeing. And Kristen, um, Varley had a great comment here that I'll, just put up for us. Um, yeah, I'd like to, to echo that your life doesn't need to look like other people's lives. And uh, Kristen says, I wish I'd been told that even once before I was 25. I figured it out at 43. Me too. It is very freeing to, to just, well, it's not even knowing that it's, it's living it. It's very hard to live that life. And I mean, I have always, I didn't know I had ADD. I didn't know what it was. I knew that I couldn't do what other people did. Stupid workarounds for me that, I mean, I can't hang clothes up. I just can't. I, the idea of taking clothes and hanging them in the, on a hanger and putting them in the closet, I tried that for 25 years. All I ended up with was piles on my And so I finally figured out that if I took out the bar in my closet and I put bins in my closet and I just threw T-shirts in one bin and I put a label on it that said T-shirts, another one that said you know, sweatpants, another one that said jeans, all of a sudden my clothes got put away. And I have no cabinets in my kitchen, no open uh, upper cabinets. I took everything off and I put upper shelves instead because cabinets are where things go to disappear and never come back out. Anything in a drawer or behind a door gets hidden. If I can't see it, it doesn't exist. And I think because I've always been so quirky and, and had different ways of seeing things, um, it has enabled me to to realize that I'm not going to look like other people no matter what I do. So I'm going to stop trying, you know, yeah. you know, a lot of um, a surprising number of writer moms on the show have given some of these like home ec advice, <laughs> like the one that you just did. And it's yeah. amazing. Like the baskets in the closet. I'm going to try that. Cause the idea yeah. of hanging things up, I do the same thing. Right. Um, I think it was, um, 
oh gosh, Liz Lenz maybe who has a sock basket and she doesn't match yeah. socks or roll them up. She just puts all the socks in the holes now and they don't have to match or whatever. Yeah, I mean, we, um, did that, we did that for all my kids. My kids all have bins in their closet because I'm not hanging up their clothes either. I mean, I'm not. And at one point we had all the kids, we've tried a hundred different things. At one point we had all the kids clothes um, in bins next to the washer and dryer and the kids would go down and, and we had shelves with their names on them. It was somewhat organized. But that way they couldn't keep them in their room and they couldn't have them on the floor of their room. They couldn't have messy rooms. And you just, their clothes were kept downstairs. You took them out of the washer and you put boys shirts in one and girls shirts in another and girls pants in another. And they were all right there next to the washing machines. They were clean. And the kids came down every night, got their clothes the next day and put their dirty clothes into the lamper. And there were no clothes in their room and their closets were empty. So when in their closets, they could keep all their books and all their toys and all the stuff they needed to hide in their room. It was fantastic. And um, I just just because other people figured out how to use hangers doesn't mean I'm ever going to figure it out. I mean, there are certain things I just don't want to spend my time doing. I love that. I love that. I think I'm trying to remember again, which I think it was Kristen Bear who said that she got all of her kids blue clothes. Like they were all just blue. <laughs> Great so idea. Know. You know, you can't see stains. They. Right. I mean, I I have a lot of envy for people like Einstein who just wore the same thing every day all day long. And I I mean, I did. I would if I had any choice. I remember in high school, a girl came up to me and I was an odd duck in high school and a girl came up and she said, you know, we really like you and we want you to be part of our group. And I've really tried hard to get them to accept you, but you wear the same pair of jeans every day and they won't let me be friends with you. If you wear the same pair of jeans every day, I was like, Oh, people notice. She's like, yeah, they notice. It's like, I had no idea anybody ever looked at anything I wore. She's like, they do. So like, can you just start? Do you have other clothes? I'm like, yeah, I just, don't know how to hang them up or put them away. So I'm getting fun. <laughs> and she's like, well, if you just start wearing other clothes, then you can be part of the, and I was like, whatever. And I think I did. I, I don't think I just wanted to be part of their group as much as I, it opened my eyes to the way that other people see me and that there are other people paying it. Cause I've always felt invisible and that nobody cared what I wore. Um, and I did start wearing better clothes and everything else. So there is, your life doesn't have to lay in bases, but if you want friends, you kind of have to know what people are going to think is creepy and what people are going to think is, you know, off kilter. And, you know, so I, I do try to do the bare minimum to fit into basic society. <laughs> I think that's a, a valid F, a valid goal. Yeah. I, know. I have like one outfit I wear. Well, in, in pandemic times too, you know, yeah. it's like the target prairie dress is oh, perfectly yeah. acceptable and the, you know, sweatpants right. you wear every day to zoom meetings. Yeah. Right. Well, that's what I was, I said, if target really wants a great outfit to sell instead of the prairie dress, they should sell a zoom outfit where you have a fancy thing on top and sweatpants on the bottom with big pockets and, you know, you can wear it all day long. And that way, if you're walking by a Zoom meeting, you can just drop in and then go back to, to what you were doing. Stain proof, wine proof, coffee proof, you know. Um, yep. Yeah, then, I always have to be yeah. careful when I stand up in a Zoom meeting because oh, yeah. not only do I wear sweatpants, but I haven't worn a bra in a year. So, like, <laughs> I stand up, I'm like, oh, better sort of <laughs> yeah. cover myself. That's what I was putting in my um, – I wrote about on Facebook right before this is that I, I had to go get makeup for this because I haven't worn makeup in a year. So I had to send away for makeup. And I started Googling how to do makeup. And I was like, well, I don't have any followers because these makeup people have 8 million followers. What are we talking about here? That's viral. And they're using words that I don't understand. And they're using things like contour and glitter and this and that. And you get the perfect cat eye. I'm like, I I have no idea what's going on here. And I I really screwed it up the first couple of times I put it on because I went and sent away for new makeup that I did not use. It's all a new world now, you know. No, I think you look great. And yeah, no, I'm with you. I um, I had a photo shoot last week and it was literally the first time that I'd had my makeup done. Like even for yeah. my wedding, I did my own. Yeah. And she brought this like this, this rolling like cabinet out yeah. and I sat there and she did all this stuff. And I was like, wow, this is good. And then she gave me a set of brushes, like the brushes that she did. Yeah. I was like, yeah, I'm never going to use exactly. I'm never going to do that again. But it did inspire me to get new lipstick. So I wore lipstick. It was, kind of it was fun to try it today. It was good to have new makeup. And now I can, you know, do it without looking ridiculous. But boy, the first couple of times, I mean, I was even like, I'll try the false eyelashes too. And I, I put on like half of it. was like, oh, no, no, there are things I'm never going to do again. I'm never going to wear high heels. I'm, ne- I'm never again going to wear pantyhose or high heels. I'm never going to do false eyelashes. And I'm okay with that. I can live with that as my legacy. You know? Yeah. 
Yeah, I think you're onto something there. Yeah. And as um, Robin Jorgensen said here, patent that Zoom outfit idea ASAP. Yes, <laughs> I will buy it. Yeah, <laughs> your first. That's that. That's what Target should be doing. This is their audience. You know, people who Hopefully. need something that won't you can't spill your wine on. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's a whole other conversation, I yeah, think, is the, the wine in a yeah, pandemic. Yeah, no kidding. And I mean, and then I, I'm, you know, joking, but one of the things I said a couple months ago was, you know, we're all going through really hard times and it's, it's tough right now. And if you need to drink, drink. If you need to, you know, hang out with people and, and go see people and that's the only thing that's going to keep your sanity, do it safely. And if the only thing, you know, if you've been sober for three years, don't drink. You know, do what you need to do to keep you sane and happy and don't give in to whatever the society pressures are right now because this is a rough time for everybody. You know, this Absolutely. is hard. Yeah, and I'll remind people, too, that a lot of, um, again, writer moms who have been on the show, we talk about trying to balance writing and motherhood and all these things. And a few of the women have really helpfully reminded me and listeners – if it's if you're not writing right now too, that's okay, yeah. right? Well, oh yeah, I thought I was going to edit this whole thing, and I thought I was going to write. I have a, another book in me somewhere about parenting and farm life, and and the things I write about on Facebook, and and cooking, and gluten free cooking, and raising children, and you know, discovering two half brothers, and I, there's a lot that I'd like yeah. to write about. I didn't get anything done this year. I mean, I did, but it was gardening, gardening like a crazy person to dig holes. So I felt like I was, you know, going outside and um, I painted my bedroom and I knocked down walls and I'm remodeling the basement and I put in hardwood stairs. I'm not a carpenter. I don't know anything about putting in hardwood stairs, but it was something that I could engage my brain in where I could learn a whole new skill and learn how to use the saw and learn how to use uh, everything because it kept my mind from the fact that we're, you know, in the horrific situation yeah you know. yeah and you know with writing too um until you have that book or even printed yeah. out pages of your manuscript it is just sort of like it's this amorphous thing right either right. in your brain or on the computer and yeah. um and it feels really good right now during this pandemic to do something you can see yeah you know, like like plant a seed and watch something and for me especially since i'm editing you know the memoir and that's my current project i'm revising it trying to get it done I, I don't have an agent right now and that's my next goal is to find an agent that does memoir and that wants it and memoirs are hard to sell there's a there's a lot of genres out there that are easy if i were writing something that was you know teen literature right now everybody wants that but memoirs are hard and um so i'm working on this memoir and a lot of it is not fun stuff to write about writing about you know being on the run or all the things that were, were bad with my mom who wants to drench that up in the middle of this whole pandemic thing? It's like, no, I'm, I'm going to go write fancy Facebook posts about fun things, about gardening and about flowers and about my, my son and his weird hobbies. And I'm not going to write about, you know, bad things right now. And, and I think that's okay. I think it's okay to indulge whatever you need to do to keep your brain happy right now. Yeah. And you've obviously been connecting with so many people through those posts because they provide a sense of, joy and levity right. and a peek into your world which you've described as quirky but is also just like amazing with farm animals and fields and well, flowers well, and that goes back to the whole your life doesn't have to look like somebody else's i mean nobody wants a 50s farmhouse that's falling down in the middle of nowhere with goats this is not something that a lot of people want they might you know like the idea of it but the first time they step in the mud and the the goats and everything else it's, it's a lot and it's I mean it's a lot of work and it's not for everybody um but yeah I mean it's fun to write about it's fun to it's fun to exp- and there are so many good things I mean just collecting your own eggs every day and baking bread with your own eggs and things like that is a lot of fun there's a lot of upsides to this and so yeah I'd much rather write about you know what the goats are doing today than something bad yeah oh I have so many more questions I know we're on an hour here but I want to ask you just um, quickly too about the farm and you mentioned you got the farm for your son um yeah. tell us just about how that came about like we um we were in texas and my my husband's from houston and um he's lived in texas his entire life and he is um my husband is pretty much the all-american man he is a fantastic human being and he's six foot tall and he's engineer and he's good looking and he was a boy scout and um 
he, his parents had been married his entire life and they got married at 21 and 22 and had him at, you know, 24. And he had been to one school, K through 12, all the way through and lived in one house the whole time. And for me, it was like marrying into Leave It to Beaver. And it was, you know, was this whole different family. And so he's from Texas and, um, we had always lived there, but I didn't always live there. I knew there were other places I wanted to live. I knew there were other worlds out there. And I kept kind of nudging him saying, we don't need to live in Texas. But the last summer we were in Austin and I liked Austin, but the last summer we were there had a hundred days over a hundred degrees and it had 30 days over 110 degrees. Hmm. And I had a, a newborn and I was like, I'm, I'm not doing this. I, I can't take her out of the house until nine o'clock at night when it's under 90 degrees. There's no way I can live like this anymore. And um, at one point on my mother's random trips around the United States, we lived in um, Oregon for a while. And Oregon was gorgeous. And so I knew I we liked it up this, this place in this area. And so when my husband was offered a job, uh, we look, he started looking for jobs somewhere cooler. We, we looked up here and my son needed wide open spaces. He was, he was nine when we moved here and he was a climber and he would, we would go to a park and we would, he would run to the top, but first tree he would see and he would climb it. And then he would look for the tallest tree and he would climb it. And he was the one that when you go to the park and the mothers are going, Oh my God, is that kid? Where is his mother? And I would, it would always be me that would always be looking for me because he was the one at the top of the tallest tree ready to climb out. And the other kids would be following him. And the other kids would be, other mothers would be, you can't follow him. He's the one you can't follow. I mean, at four, he was climbing light poles with his bare feet. He would take off his shoes and barefoot. He would climb to the top of the light pole and use his toes in his, in his hands and he'd get to the top. But if he had touched a wasp or anything on the pole, he would have been falling. I mean, 40 feet sometimes he was, incredible with the kind of input that he needed in order to, to stay sane and for us to stay sane. And we did a lot of going to parks and we did a lot of going out, but at some point we need more. And um, he was, I, I said he was obsessed, not obsessed, interested in his, his special interest was um, animals and he always wanted to go. And so he said the only thing he wanted in life was a goat. And so we moved to a farm and it's a very small farm. It's, I mean, by farm standards, it's 10 acres, which is huge by, you know, suburban standards, but it has um, an enormous barn. that was built in the 1920s and has a silo that I don't even know what a silo is for. And we don't use it. And it has work buildings and outbuildings and, and a chicken coop from 1920. And when we moved here, the lady next door who was 83 um, was born in this house. And she had been raised here and her father built the house and built the farm. And so she was able to show us where the outhouse was. And the outhouse had been built in the 1930s by uh, Roosevelt's for the farm workers so that they would stop pooping in the fields. And he the Roosevelt built all the outhouses. And um, she showed us what the barn was originally used for. <clears throat> and that she and her brothers would collect eggs every day from the chicken coop. And they had 2000 chickens and they would have to collect eggs before they went to school every morning. Oh, my God. It was originally a 40-acre farm, and the rest of them sold off. But um, And they had 40 dairy cows, and they used to milk, and so some of the equipment was still here for milking. And um, So we started off slow with a couple of goats, and my son was in love with his goat. The first we got was named Zenora, and Zenora was his pride and joy, and he adored her. He just, I mean... You've never seen a boy love a goat this much. And it was it was the right thing to do. He was out in the field every day with Zenora and hugging her and walking around with her and training her. And I don't know anything about 4-H. I've never been to a 4-H meeting. And I started a 4-H club for homeschoolers that showed goats at the county fair. And we went to the county fair and we showed Zenora. And he won a prize for goat showing. And there was a costume contest where you got to dress up your goats. And <laughs> Um, I mean, we just, we did all of it and it was good. It was really good for us. And as he's gotten older, the animals are not as important. Um, although he and his dog are just as close. He's, we got a puppy six months ago and Rosie and Sandra just are inseparable. Um, and you know, the farm is, my husband has actually enjoyed it. He raises a couple of cows. He's got two cows. And they're not a lot of work. He goes to a brewery in town and gets barley for them three days a week from the, the brewery uses all of their barley for beer and the spent barley after they boiled it. He comes back and he takes it to the cows and that's his, 
thing that he does is he takes the cow's barley and we have fresh beef for days. We just butchered two cows a couple weeks ago and um, I think we got 2,800 pounds of meat, something like that and sold it. And um, I mean, there's, there's work, but it's not a working farm where that's all of our income. So it's not as hard as it was. We have the goats because they keep the blackberries down because Sandra likes the goats because mm-hmm. they lay eggs and because chickens are fun. And if it, when Sander goes to college in a couple of years, he's 16, he's um, he's going to be in 11th grade. So he's got two or three years till he goes. Do Mark and I want to raise goats and cows by ourselves? I, I'm not a big cow person. I'm not here for the goats, you know, but we'll see what happens. On that note, yeah. that's amazing. <laughs> Thank you so much, Megan, for joining us. This has been really fun. Cool. Stick around for a second when we wrap up. But um. <laughs> Yeah, thank you. And you'll see a lot of um, nice comments in the, the chat here, too. A lot of people saying that you're um, uplifting and um, providing you some much needed humor and vicarious uh, living through you. Um, Good. So thank you. Look at all the comments. So, all right. Thank you for everything. Yeah, definitely. Um, and thank you all for joining us. Uh, as you know, you can listen to the episode again as a podcast. You can watch it. You can read a transcript on writermothermonster.com. Um, and we will be back next week. Please join us. And if you're so inclined, become a patron or patroness on Patreon to help me keep this going. So thank you all and have a great night. Bye.